Today's scripture reading is from Luke 24, 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Christmas Day of 2001, my family did something uncharacteristic for us. Uh, At that point in time, it was just Brandy and me. We didn't have kids yet. My two brothers weren't married, and we were visiting my parents. And so after unwrapping gifts, we didn't have children to continue entertaining us throughout the day. And so somebody made the call that, hey, we should go see a movie. We had never done that. So we went and saw a movie, and the movie that was decided upon was The Lord of the Rings, the first one. It had just come out. Now, I didn't know a whole lot about The Lord of the Rings. I had never read it, but I did at least know going in that it was a trilogy. My younger brother did not have that information. And so we go into this movie, and I should say we were already tired. We actually went duck hunting that morning, the boys. And so the movie's going, and we're about an hour in, and I could tell my brother was not all that enthused. In fact, he had nodded off a couple of times. At one point, I heard him snoring. But you could tell as it went on longer that the more frustrated he began to get. And at about two and a half hours in, he's a big guy, played college football, He leans over trying to be quiet, but he was the furthest thing from quiet, and he goes, dude, how long? We've been here for two and a half hours, and I'm not sensing any closure, right? He had no idea it was a trilogy. Hey, he was expecting some form of closure. Most movies get there. This one didn't. And I share that to make the point that it's helpful to know how to watch something, or in our case, how to read something before you start right? You would read a standalone book differently than you would a multi-volume work. And these kinds of data points are important as we start a new book of the Bible. And I would say especially important as we start a biblical book like Genesis, where there's so much misunderstanding, a book that is often read so poorly with little to no thought to how this book fits the greater narrative of the whole Bible. No thought as to how it is the first book of a multi-volume masterpiece, 66 books, all singing the same song. And so as we begin this study in Genesis, 
this magnificent book of the Bible, it's vitally important for us to consider how we should read this book. How does the Bible itself teach us to read this book? And how does the book of Genesis fit the rest of the Bible? Now, I would propose to you that a failure to understand these things will lead to, at best, a thin reading of Jesus, uh, Genesis, at worst, a complete misunderstanding of it. Let me just give you a quick example. If you were to do a quick search on Amazon or wherever it is that you buy books and look up Genesis, you would find a bunch of character studies, right? You'd find books on Abraham. You'd find books on Joseph, how to be a modern-day Joseph, how to be a woman like Sarah. Even a lot of the preaching of this book typically falls well short of getting at its purpose. I mean, we could preach a bunch of character studies as we go through the book. I trust it would be rather engaging. And while it might look a bit like expository preaching because each week we'd pick up where we left off, it would really be a long string of topical sermons disguised as expository sermons because we're going through the Bible. See, see, that's the kind of interpretive traps we fall into when we don't step back and make sure we're understanding whole Bible theology and how each book fits into God's masterpiece. And so in this first sermon on Genesis today, my aim is to really help us zoom way out. I want to take sort of a 30,000-foot flyover of this great book. We want to step back and make sure we have some sense of the big picture of Genesis, indeed some sense of the big picture of the whole Bible, so that as we go through this book together, section by section, we understand how each section is moving us closer to where the book is trying to take us. So let's get started. I trust you have an outline. It should be there in your gathering guide, and this will be helpful as you follow along. You'll notice the outline is broken into two main parts. First, we're going to spend a few moments on some background stuff, and then we'll get into the actual outline of the book. With regards to background, I, I do have to speak to authorship just a bit because of so much of the teaching that's out there. Uh, if you were to ask a first century Jew who wrote the book of Genesis, they would look at you like you were crazy. There'd be no hesitation at all. It, it would be Moses. It was sometime after the Exodus, be, between the Exodus and his death, probably 1400s BC, give or take a little bit, depending on how you're dating. Of course, this Moses is the very Moses that we read about in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, clearly God's man. He was a prophet of God. He was given the law of God to give to the people of God. And thus, for essentially 4,000 years, going back to the time of Moses, this view has held sway. It was not until the late 1900s that a group of liberal German theologians began to argue against Mosaic authorship, purporting something known as the documentary hypothesis. And you don't, you don't have to remember that. In fact, I would say if you do remember it, you're probably wasting good brain space. But I do point it out because to differing degrees or another, you find this in most of your moderate to liberal seminaries, and it's in most of your commentaries on Genesis and has even found its way into some study Bibles. Now, they would argue that the entire Pentateuch, the Pentateuch's the first five books of the Bible, the entire Pentateuch is a composite of four different traditions, Genesis only having three of those, and these traditions are brought together by an editor sometime after the Babylonian captivity. So just think what they're doing with the dating of all of this. 
Here's the problem with that view. And I would say it's a major problem, aside from the fact that none of the documentary hypothesis can be proven. So it really is, as they say, hypothesis, though it's treated as fact, much like the theory of evolution is treated as fact. The biggest problem here is that the Bible itself, indeed Jesus himself, God in the flesh, ascribes authorship of Genesis to Moses. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting in verse 19. John chapter 7, starting in verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Again, the first five books. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. That's Genesis 17. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So, so Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, clearly understood Moses to be the author of Genesis, which in my mind makes Mosaic authorship of Genesis about as ironclad as you can get. So I think we can say we know that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Now we want to think about to what end? What, what, what's the purpose of Genesis? How does Genesis fit within the big story of the Bible? And at one level, it's a Simple question to answer, and at another level, it's a little more challenging. At a very basic level, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and so it tells us the story of the beginning, right? Every narrative has to start somewhere. A good fiction book typically starts once upon a time. A good nonfiction book often begins setting the table for what's going to be taught on, right? Perhaps defining some terms, giving some data that you're going to need to proceed on in the book, and Genesis does all of this. In fact, at one level, we simply cannot understand the rest of the Bible in full, even the New Testament, unless there's a basic understanding of the book of Genesis. Now, I think you can get around this a bit because these ideas are picked up in other parts of the Bible, but they have their start here. Now, think about it. While other books of the Bible describe God as creator... The idea is introduced and focused on here. It's here in Genesis where we see God speak and the whole world comes into existence. It's here we get a sense of the person of God, right? Other ancient traditions, there was a belief in multiple gods, right? This God goes around and he does this, this God does this, and this God does that. But in Genesis, we see monotheism. In fact, I think we see Sort of an introduction to God as Trinity, as we'll talk about as we go. What's more, it's here in Genesis that we learn that not only does God make man in his own image, but we learn that man is a downright mess. Man is in trouble. Genesis 6-5, for instance, right at the beginning of the Bible, we, we see a text that later is a text that we build our doctrine of total depravity of man. And so in Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. That's right at the beginning of our Bible, only evil continually. Now, some might say, yeah, but that was before the flood and God wiped all those people out and and started over. But we need to be clear that even after the flood, he reiterates the same thoughts. And and he says in chapter 8, verse 21, so after the flood, I will never again curse the ground of man because man's gotten so much better. Nope, that's not what he says. He says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man because the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. I mean, that's a lot different than our typical modern worldview. But, but Genesis is teaching these things right from the beginning. Man is sinful, utterly sinful, and God judges sinners. And this is clear in the book of beginnings as well. We see the judgment of God in the garden, for example. We see the judgment of God in the flood. God judges sinners. And yet we mustn't miss the fact that we see the amazing grace of God that likewise shines forth so brightly in Genesis. Think about the fall. God could have just wiped Adam and Eve out, right? They rebelled against him. He could have just wiped them out and started over. What about after the flood? The people on the ark still sinned when they got off the ark. I mean, when we get there, we are going to have to answer the question, what do you do with a drunk, naked Noah, right? And yet, especially if you know what you're looking for, we see God working out his plan of salvation. We see salvation from judgment, salvation through judgment. And in this, it's vitally important that we see from the very beginning of this series that in showing us the sin of man, the judgment and salvation of God, The book of Genesis is consistently pointing us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ through what we call typology. And this is vital to our understanding of this book. So I want to lean in on this a bit. What do we mean when we speak of typology? It's certainly in the same family as prophecy, as it's it's a looking ahead. But when we speak of prophecy, most people are thinking in terms of a direct word from the Lord, what theologians will often refer to as oracular prophecy, the thus says the Lord kind of prophecy. And so in our thinking about Jesus, you might think of a text like, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's indeed prophecy. That is a way that the Bible points us ahead to Christ. But more often than not, we see the Old Testament writers pointing us to Jesus through what the Bible refers to as types and shadows. You might think of Romans 5.14, where Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ. Adam? Type of Christ? Yeah. Adam points us ahead to Jesus. He's a type of Jesus as he stands as the fountainhead of all creation. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, the fountainhead of all of the new creation so also in Christ all will be justified and live. The writer of Hebrews, for example, makes it clear that the priesthood, the temple, point to Jesus as what he calls copies and shadows of the heavenly things. And so with typology, you often have a a person or an event or a place that has a vital meaning in its original context. That's important. You can't just leap from that to Jesus. You have to understand it in its context But it's also begging for more, right? It's also pointing beyond itself. A great example of this is Jesus speaking of the temple in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, tear 
this temple down, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Jewish leaders thought he was talking about the earthly temple. He says, tear this temple down, three days, I'll raise it up. The temple was a type. The temple was the unique place where God met with his people, and to be vitally connected to God, one had to be vitally connected to the temple. Jesus then comes as the anti-type, or the fulfillment. Thus, Jesus is now the unique place where God meets with his people, and to be vitally connected to God, one must be vitally connected to Jesus. And we could go to example after example, because this really is the predominant way the Old Testament points us to Christ. And by the way, if we fail to read Genesis or any other Old Testament book for that matter, if we fail to read it this way, I would argue we actually fail to read Genesis biblically. And I want to show you what I'm talking about. This is very important to this whole series, so we, we, we want to know why we're saying this. Turn to John 5. Look at two texts, two of many we could go to. John 5, starting in verse 45. Here Jesus is arguing with the Jewish leaders. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Notice Jesus is saying to these Bible scholars, if you were reading Moses correctly, you would have seen me coming. Turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. Read some of this in our scripture reading. Luke 24. I'm going to start in verse 25. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. Disciples are struggling with what's happened. And he starts talking to two of them and he says... Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, right? He's, he's getting after them a little bit, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into to his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a short form of saying, beginning with the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That would have been an awesome lesson to be a part of. He was showing them how the Old Testament pointed to him. Drop down to verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's also a way of referring to the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you think we should probably learn our her- hermeneutic from the apostles? I-, I would say so. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And I have a question for you. If you struggle with typology, where does the Old Testament say that? Where does it ever say that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead? There is not a single text that says, thus says the Lord, Jesus will suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. You only get there of the word pointing us in that direction if you understand typology. All these types and shadows pointing us in that direction. And so as we go through this study of Genesis, 
It is vital that we understand that this whole book is pointing us to Christ. And let me just say, this is one of the reasons when preaching Old Testament narrative that I tend to move much faster than I would say through an epistle of Paul. We're going to cover larger sections because we want to make sure that each sermon lands on Christ. And in order not to force that, you're typically looking at bigger sections so that you get to Jesus in legitimate ways. And again, if we miss that, I think we tend to fall into understanding these narratives in a purely moralistic sort of way. I mean, there's a place for talking about moralism, but you tend to look at it in a purely moralistic sort of way, kind of the be like Abraham here, don't be like Esau here. And if we fall into that, again, I think we're reading these passages in a way that Scripture never intended us to read them. And so this is a good time to turn our attention to the outline itself to get an overview of what we're talking about. Now, this is a condensed version of an outline that we'll kind of build out as we go. As you look at it, you'll see that the book of Genesis really does have a tight structure to it. I think one of the worst misreadings of this book is when people say it's just a bunch of unrelated stories. I think that is total hogwash. That's not true. The book of Genesis has a simple yet beautiful structure that you see as you work your way through. In fact, I think it's worth pointing out that a number of books of the Bible, when you read commentaries and multiple commentaries, it's disputed how you take the structure, but it's really not the case in Genesis. I mean, you compare a bunch of commentaries, compare the study Bibles, because it's basically pretty clear. The book of Genesis breaks down into two parts. First is what I'm calling the need for seed. Chapter 1 through 1126 which is the early history of the earth, what theologians refer to as primeval history. Then you have part two, which is the longer of the two parts, what I'm calling the unveiling of the seed, which is the history of the patriarchs. And each of these two major sections consistently break down into smaller sections with the constant refrain, these are the generations of. You're just going to see that over and over again. New section, these are the generations of. Right? That's how Moses transitions us from one section to the other. And so if you're looking at your outline, you're going to have things like, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah, and so on and so forth. And I should point out that with each of these, it's pointing ahead from the person that it's just mentioned. But what's more, there are some of these lineages that we'll see are treated differently And they're treated differently because their purpose really is to move the person they're talking about aside, if I can put it that way, kind of make it clear it's not the one that this line is going through, okay? So pretty simple, two main parts, need for seed and unveiling of the seed with a bunch of people and very important genealogies filling out the detail in a very purposeful way. So what does all that mean? Why should we care, right? How does it fit together? How does it help us understand the rest of the Bible? Well, let's think about that. In Genesis 1 through 3, so the first three chapters, we see God, glorious, outside of time, all-powerful, and he speaks, and the world comes into existence. And we're told that his creation was good. He then creates Adam and later Eve, the first man and first woman, in his own image. And it's said that it's all very good. When you read the narrative, it's clear he created Adam and Eve, indeed all humans, to live in perfect fellowship with him. Yet it didn't last long. In just the third chapter of the very first book of the Bible, everything goes wrong. Satan comes into the garden, guised as a serpent. He deceives 
Eve and both Adam and Eve willfully reject God's commands and sin against him. And at that point, at that moment, sin enters into God's perfect creation. And Adam and Eve, indeed all mankind, no longer had perfect relationship with God. Sin had now broken Adam and Eve's fellowship with God and all who would come after them. And as a result of their sin, God cursed the earth. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and death enters into the world. And yet, yet, it's clear from the scriptures that this was nowhere near the end of the story, praise God. Their sin didn't catch God off guard and he didn't just wash his hands of us. He already had a rescue mission in place. In fact, if you're reading through the scriptures, you see that from this point on, the rest of Holy Scripture teaches us of God's gracious and glorious plan of reconciling sinners like us back to himself. Genesis 3, 14 through 16, which I've expanded a bit in your outline here because it's of vital importance. In, in the midst of God revealing his judgment for sin, we see that he makes this big, amazing promise that the rest of Genesis, indeed you could say the rest of the Bible, goes on to unpack. These verses have rightly been called by many theologians the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the foreshadowing of the gospel. Here we read that after man's fallen to sin, God curses the serpent, he curses Satan, and then he foretells of his plan to redeem lost people who were now alienated from him because of our sin. And in verse 15, we read that God would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between Eve and Satan, more specifically between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We're told that the seed of the serpent would crush the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so already here at the very beginning of the first book of the Bible, we have our first glimpse God's plan of redeeming man back to himself. Already right here at the very beginning, we have our first picture of Jesus standing in the shadows. Yeah, sure, this plan of redemption, this shadow of Jesus, if you will, is opaque at the moment, but it's nevertheless present. God's plan of redeeming lost man will come about through conflict, as we see in this passage, but ultimate victory is assured, and it will come through the seed of the woman, and the rest of the book of Genesis. Perhaps we can broadly say the rest of the Old Testament picks up on and unpacks this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So real quickly, let's sketch in some of the conflict that we see between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that follows Genesis 3. And by the way, just a side note, Our English Bibles don't do justice to this theme of seed because sometimes, depending on which translation we're reading, sometimes they take seed as descendants, sometimes offspring, sometimes descendants here and offspring there, whereas if you're reading in your Hebrew Old Testament or your Greek New Testament, you see that it is consistently used. The the readers would have just read seed, 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 okay? So on that point, Genesis 4, we read that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel is portrayed as the seed of the woman, and Cain appears to be portrayed as a seed of the serpent, as I think becomes more obvious as he receives the curse. Now, if you know this narrative, you know that Cain kills Abel, and it appears as though the seed of the serpent has triumphed, but God's in control. He's sovereign. 
and he's working out his good promise. And thus he gives Eve another seed named Seth. And I know I'm skimming here, but as we go through, we'll see that it's through the line of Seth that the godly line of the seed of the woman is preserved as seen in the genealogy that follows Seth. Again, by the time you get to Noah, you have all these wicked people that have come through the line of Cain who are most displeasing to God. And again, it looks like the seed of the serpent has triumphed. And yet God wipes out all the evil men, the seed of the serpent, through the flood and preserves the seed of the woman through Noah. But we would say God's salvation through judgment, another key theme. He reestablishes his covenant with Noah and his seed. Once again, we see God working out his plan in and through the seed of the woman. Incidentally, if you've ever wondered why Scripture gives some understanding of the world at large, right, creation and world events in this time period, but really focuses on this particular succession of people and their lives, it's because the Scriptures are all about God's plan of redeeming His people. It's all about God's plan of redemption, and this plan of redemption is carried out through those that most of the Scripture focuses on. And if you get nothing else this morning... Don't miss that this book, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. Well, after the flood, we're told of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Quite frankly, the point of most of the narrative is help get Ham and Japheth out of the way and make it clear that the line is going through Shem. And this is quite evident as it's Shem's line that takes us to a guy named Terah who leads to Abram, who will later be called Abraham. And Abraham is, of course, the continuation of the line that we're following. And in fact, when you get to Abraham, you're going to see the narrative slow down even further as it's going to zero in on each of these guys a little more. The stories of Abraham portray his Faith in God and in God's promises. You come across one of your key texts of the whole Bible. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But as we go through this narrative, we'll also consistently see that God's amazing grace in working out his rescue mission is through regular sinners, regular failures like us. This is seen in, say, Abraham and Isaac's lying to save their own necks. Oh, she's my sister. Right? Or Jacob's cheating, cheating out his brother of his birthright. Nevertheless, God continues his plan of redemption, even through broken people. Certainly much could be said about Abraham, but what's really important for our purposes this morning is that God promises to bless Abraham and his seed. God chose Abraham, and he made a covenant with him, which we'll see when we come to Genesis 12, 15, and 22, and there's numerous promises under this one covenant. God promises to be with Abraham. He promises to give him a great name. He tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be taken down into Egypt and then brought back. He promises the land of Canaan, what we know as the promised land, and he promises to bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham's seed. For those who know your Bibles, you know these promises are all partially fulfilled in types. I mean, take Joseph, for example. All of the nations, at least those around that area, were indeed blessed through Joseph, were they not? God preserves multiple nations through Joseph's provision in the famine. And yet none of these promises find their ultimate fulfillment until the Lord Jesus. 
You have fulfillments along the way, but again, each one's hanging out there. You can tell it's not ultimately fulfilled. It's pointing ahead. And of course, the New Testament makes this very explicit for us. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 picks up on what we're talking about with Abraham. I want you to turn there with me. Galatians chapter 3. Genesis 3, Galatians 3. You get a lot of the story right there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his offspring, the ESV says. That word is seed, okay? The promises to Abraham, promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. You see, Paul makes it explicit that the promise to Abraham doesn't reach its ultimate fulfillment in the making and expansion of the nation of Israel. It doesn't find its ultimate fulfillment in Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. Yes, that's all part of the promise, but it's not at this point that the seed becomes a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It's only in the birth and perfect life of the Lord Jesus. It's only in the sacrificial death on the cross and his death conquering resurrection that this promise reaches its ultimate fulfillment and this seed becomes a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Do you see? And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. After our narrative of Abraham, we see that the line of the seed of the woman is traced through Isaac and then Jacob. And of course it gets interesting and more difficult to follow when we get to which of Jacob's sons is ultimately the continuation of the seed of the woman. Joseph, though the 11th of 12 sons, seems to be the chosen one. And later, when Joseph brings his two sons to his father to bless them, he blesses Ephraim instead of Manasseh. And so it seems that the line is going to go through Joseph, through Ephraim. And there's some sense in which this is true. There's certainly a blessing there. First Chronicles 5 tells us that the birthright was in fact given to Joseph and thus to Ephraim. And, and of course, we know Joshua, the great Israelite leader, comes through the line of Ephraim and is a blessing to the Israelite people by leading them, them in the conquest. In addition, we see later that Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, comes through this line. So this line is clearly a blessing. And yet the rest of the Old Testament is clear. But the seed by which God will redeem his people is not the line of Ephraim. It's helpful to note, and this is very interesting, we're going to see this in two key places in Genesis. I think this is a writing strategy of Moses. It's helpful to note that right in the midst of the narrative of Joseph, you have this unexpected detour, like you're cruising along and uh, it just turns the corner, right? And the next chapter, he goes off into this wild, bizarre story about Judah and Tamar that, to be perfectly honest with you, would fit well on the Dr. Phil show. But, but see, if you get all bogged down in the morality of that story, you would absolutely miss that the entire narrative of Judah and Tamar focuses on the idea of seed, which is a clear indication something's going on. And much light's then shed on that narrative when you get to the story of Jacob actually pronouncing blessings and curses on all his sons. And here we see that it is Judah that he foresees ruling the nations. It's therefore through the seed of Judah that one would come who would one day redeem his people. And as we're asking how the book of Genesis fits the greater story of the whole Bible, 
This whole narrative keeps right on going, doesn't it? I mean, if I had time, I could talk about how the line looks dead at times. And yet, you see Joseph save the line. Or, or later in the Pentateuch, you see Moses lead God's people. But in this idea of tracing the line that Genesis starts for us, in the interest of time, I want to just jump to David since we landed on Judah. It's here that we have more information about the continuation of the seed of the woman. And we see that it goes through David. We see that with the moving of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the covenant that the Lord makes with David. 2 Samuel 7 is a key passage for understanding your whole Bible. God tells David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, that language is so important, forever many respects, this promise to David is fulfilled in his son Solomon. Solomon does build the temple. But again, this is where typology is so important. When we speak of typology in the scriptures, we're talking usually about something or someone that serves as a type but points beyond itself. And so in one real sense, Solomon is a fulfillment of that promise, but not completely. He, he doesn't bring about this eternal kingdom. That promise is still pointing forward to its ultimate fulfillment. First and second kings are helpful for us here because with only a few exceptions, they tell us about the failure of the rest of the Davidic kings to remain faithfully obedient to the Lord. Nevertheless, when you read that, there's an expectation that God will remain faithful to his covenant with David. Then you come to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all looking forward to a future Davidic king through whom God will fulfill all his promises to Israel and all the nations. And this one who would one day save man from the curse would come through the line of Abraham, through the line of David. And I know that's a lot, right? Like a, more of a seminary lecture than a sermon. But I want you to turn with me to Matthew 1.1. And see what I'm talking about. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first sentence of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See what Matthew did there. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew makes it clear right from the beginning. Ding, ding, ding. Right here, folks. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus and Jesus alone is the long-awaited seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all the nations. He's the seed of David who would build a house for God, the body of Christ whose kingdom would be established forever. Jesus is therefore the fulfillment of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, which he did on the cross. And so, church, as we go through this wonderful book of Genesis together as we delve deeply into what are some wild stories at times. We need to make sure we're clear. It's all about Christ. The entire book of Genesis wants to point us ahead and cause us to rejoice in our great and glorious God who not only created, but has gone to such great lengths to redeem. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to just think briefly of two points of application that I think flow from the big picture of Genesis. Number one, 
the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about Christ because we all need Jesus so desperately. We need Jesus. Man's heart is totally wicked, only evil continually. We can thank and praise God that our salvation does not ultimately rely upon us. God in his grace has done it all. Let me just pause and say, if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ, I I would plead with you to look to Christ. You've heard as we've been going through that all of us, every single person in this room, every single human being, we've all rebelled against God. And the Bible teaches us that because of our rebellion, we deserve his judgment. But God in his grace had a plan He had a rescue mission. He sent Jesus to come and save his people. Jesus went to the cross to bear the punishment we deserve to bear. And for those who look to Christ and trust in him, we can have our sins forgiven and fellowship with God restored. And I would plead with you, friend, would you look to Christ even today? For believers, the same holds true. We're already in by faith in Christ, but we continually look to Christ every single day because we continue to sin every day, right? And so as we think about the fact that all of the Bible is about Jesus, that's teaching us, it's leading us to rest in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Number two, the second thing that's clear when we think about the big picture of this book is that God works his plans through weak feeble sinners like you and me. As we study this book together, we're going to see very quickly that the key figures in this text are not superheroes. In fact, they're really pretty pathetic at times, really all the time, sometimes just more than others. And you know what? That sounds a lot like somebody else I know. Sounds a lot like me. Sounds a lot like you. And I find that, to be honest with you, I find that encouraging. God not only saves sinners like us, like we so often say around here, but he also uses, works through weak, pathetic sinners like us, working out his good, eternal plans. And I think for most of us non-superhero types, that's pretty encouraging. Because we know deep down in our hearts, we don't live on mission for Jesus every day. In fact, we have days we don't even think about the mission. We all know our own hearts. We know our own thoughts. We know our own actions. And we can come to the wrong conclusion on our own that God would never use anyone like me. But in fact, reading through Genesis, you see him working through people like you all the way through. And so one of my prayers is that as we go through Jesus, we'll all derive encouragement that not only does God save sinners like us, but he also works out his good, glorious plans through people like us and that that truth will encourage us Uh, perhaps shoot a little wind under our proverbial sails and empower us to keep on seeking to honor Christ, continue to focus on Jesus and point others to him. So brothers and sisters, it's going to be a, a fun series. There's a lot in this book. And so let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord would grow us as a church in depth and in breadth as we tackle this glorious book together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, how 
you have saved sinners like us through his amazing work on the cross. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to the cross, as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would use this time in our lives to draw us ever closer to you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.